Inuk speak English. English only. English only. All right. Okay. We begin. How does neuromuscular efficiency affect the lift that has a stretch reflex versus one that doesn't? Well, a person who is uh, extremely uh, efficient, someone with a, a big standing vertical jump, is better at recruiting motor units than somebody who is not. This means that he is going to have more profound stretch reflex efficiency. His recruitment as a result of performing stretch reflex will be better than ours. And uh, uh, as far as the, I, I mean, stretch reflexes are used in, it, at the start of essentially every explosive movement anyway. So people with big standing verticals just more effectively use a stretch reflex. One of the other interesting things about people with big standing verticals is that the first day they train, guys like that are always stronger than people with lower verticals, just in terms of how much weight they can lift on day one. They start off stronger because they're using more of their muscle mass. They're used to using more of their muscle mass. They're better visual learners. They're better technically at first in addition to the fact that they have a big uh, stretch reflex efficiency with the standing vertical jump and every other stretch reflex they perform. So the benefit is greater for the, the squat than the deadlift? Yeah, because the deadlift is, a, is an exercise that is designed to take out the stretch reflex. In fact, you'll notice uh, that uh, novice lifters, and perhaps, I had never thought about this, but I would, I would say that following along your lines, probably if you're teaching a guy with a, a, a talented natural athlete to deadlift on day one, he might have more of a tendency to try to jerk it off the floor than uh, someone uh, who's less uh, used to effectively performing a stretch reflex. It's more embedded in him. Those kind of people you have to just teach to squeeze the bar off the floor. And are they, those people always going to have a, uh, are they going to get to higher levels of strength always? If they continue to train, yes. And they have more room to train. Yeah. Yes, they do. They start off at a higher level and they'll plateau at a higher level than we will. Everybody in professional sports is that way. This is what's so ridiculous about the sports media going on and on about how strong this Steph Curry guy is. Remember that story a while back? 405 for six on a hex bar, on a trap bar deadlift. Why, that's astonishingly strong. He's, no, it's not. No, it's not. She can do that here in about a year. It's not, that's embarrassing. But they all thought it was real strong. And it's just, it's ridiculous. They don't know what they're dealing with. Their coaches don't know either. So it's not just the fault of Sports Illustrated. At what age is it, and what factors do you use in determining when you start training in a child or youth? 
I thought that was your question. I have others. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll go. We'll let him ask that. All right. Uh, all right. Children can start training with weights the minute they are able to effectively perform the exercise correctly with appropriate coaching. I'm reciting this from memory because it gets asked every time. Children cannot train according to our definition until they achieve Tanner stage four. All right. Does anybody want to discuss that further? You sure? You understand what I'm... Why can't they train until they get to Tanner stage four? Well, they don't have the hormonal environment to recover from gradually increasing training loads, which gets hard pretty quick. They're just children. They're growing anyway. So they're going to get stronger whether you train them or not. This is another fascinating thing about uh, D1 strength and conditioning coaches. You get a whole locker room full of incoming freshmen, 18-year-old guys with a 36-inch vertical. What would you expect those guys to do over the next four years? Get better. Get better. <laughs> and what if you sit in the office and play free sale and have your assistants do one set to fail your hammer strength with them? What are they going to do? They're going to get better. What does it look like your program did? Made them better. What actually happened? They grew. <laughs> so this Tanner stage thing is terribly important. Now, the, the most important thing about training kids is, is what I found over the years is that children are impatient and they are amazingly inattentive to their eccentric descent on the exercises that require lowering themselves into the bottom. They will slam down into the bottom of a squat. They'll fall into the bottom of a squat. They have to be taught not to do that. If you can teach them not to do that and make it safe, and if you can avoid psychologically abusing the child by making him train when he'd rather be out playing army and throwing dirt clods at his buddies and climbing trees and shit, which is you only get to do that once. So leave them the fuck alone and let them do that, you know. And if they want to go with you to the gym and they consider it play, then let them go with you. you they can train. There's nothing inherently dangerous about the movements if they're performed correctly for a five-year-old any more than there is for a 55-year-old. But they have to be able to be coached. And you have to not be an asshole to your children. And project your wishes and desires on them. That's a bad deal. Okay? Doug. All right, I'm curious about the mental part of weightlifting. And if it is, if you find that sometimes people can lift more than they believe they can, and that is what limits them, so they plateau on a mental block rather than a physical block. Yeah. And how you break through that, if that is. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, 
that is one of those things that has a, quite a bit to do with the training environment, the environment in the gym. Uh, in fact, Tommy Suggs wrote an article on our website that specifically deals with that, and I think he calls that the X factor. But it, it uh, is a widely observed phenomenon that if everybody in your gym is squatting 700 as opposed to 405, then pretty soon you're going to have a 700-pound squat just because that's what you're going to do. So yeah, it has quite a bit to do with it. If you're training by yourself, you can see the problems. There are advantages to training in a gym. And the, probably the, the, the best advantage is not equipment, because you can control equipment. But if you're in there trained by yourself in the garage, you're pretty much dependent on your numbers that you've written in the book to provide the motivation. But if everybody in the gym is squatting 700, you're going to try to catch up. Because that's the standard and you're going to try to meet the standard. And as a result, uh, you know, that, that psychological factor is greatly influenced by the herd you're training with. We being social animals and all. So how would I suggest that you improve your psychological environment if you're trained by yourself? I don't know. I don't know. The, the whole time I was getting strong, long time ago, I was training with a group of guys in the gym. You know, and yeah, you finished the last rep. Sometimes you did an extra one. So you'd have bragging rights. You know, what do you do if you're by yourself and uh, you don't want to do the last rep? Well, you do it anyway. But it's easier if somebody's yelling at you about being a pussy. It's a lot easier. Guys get motivated by that kind of thing. I don't know about groups of women, but what do y'all call each other when you're training in groups and one? And your training partner's about to miss the last set. You don't call him a dick, do you? <laughs> don't be a dick. Make the last rep. I, you don't say that. Surely not. It's even more important for them not to be a dick. Right. Okay. Well, anyway, sports psychology. Huh? Uh, we, uh, you and I were talking just briefly a little bit earlier about uh, Carol Smith's book. Uh, yeah. Engineer to win. Right. And I would like to hear your comments about, like, you know, why do you think that's important to strength training? Because, and, I, and I've, I've given this book to several members of the staff, none of whom have read it. I, I would start comment Lazy that. bastards. I've read the book 20 times. Yeah. And that's no exaggeration. Yeah, and I, and I, and I intend to eventually get it read 20 times because it's extremely interesting. And the, it's called Engineer to Win. Carol Smith the man's name. Uh, it's available on Amazon from a private seller, Engineer to Win. Highly recommend it. Now, it's a book about metallurgy and uh, the things that are made out of metal and, and uh, all of the engineering considerations that go into thinking about how to make things out of metal. And 
I think the important thing about that book, and the reason I gave it to the staff, uh, I wanted them to read it because I think it, it is a very interesting way to teach about details. It's about the details of things. When a bolt is screwed into a tapped hole, what actually occurs? What occurs is the bolt is tightened. What happens is the bolt is, is after tightening stops, what occurs over time between the threads of the bolt and the threads of the hole. All these little tiny details. Do the materials make any difference? Materials that the bolt or the hole are made out of. Does any other action on the, on the shaft of that bolt make any difference to the lifespan of the bolt, lifespan of the hole? All these tiny little details. Mr. Smith walks you through and helps you think about it. And if you start learning to think that way about what you do, then you'll be better at what you do, whether it's, whether it's designing a race car and all little tiny fine processes that are involved in designing a race car or designing a training program. So yeah, I, that's a hell of a book. I'm glad. Uh, and I'll tell you who, uh, who told me to buy that book was a guy named Barry Vincent. Barry's uh, been reading the website for a long time. Thanks, Barry. <coughs> Appreciate it very much. Got about halfway through it, still working my way through it. Uh, and uh, Barry owns uh, several manufacturing facilities. He's primarily involved in oil field manufacturing, but he thought that I should read that. And he was right. I think everybody ought to read that. It's, a, it's an excellent lesson in how to take science and apply it to technology. I think one of the interesting things I learned over the weekend was how similar your business is to mine. We just... You, you, you grab a problem, and you solve that problem, and you move on. Right. And try not to ignore any of the steps. Try not to ignore the fact that there may be steps that you don't know are there. And you can't get something for nothing. No. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Absolutely true. MJ? Uh, I don't intend to go to Canada to do a seminar personally. Now they can go whenever they want to. I'm not going. So uh, I don't know. We'll talk to Tom about it. He doesn't seem to mind going up there, but I'm not going to Toronto. Not going to Toronto. I don't mind Canada, but I'm not going through Canadian customs again. Fuck those people. <laughs> Fuck those. See, I've got a, somebody else in agreement back here, right? That's, a, that's ridiculous. I don't know what the hell they think they're doing, but uh, they're just there to fuck you up. That's all they're like. You know, you, you can say all you want about U.S. Customs, but Canadian Customs is an amazing bunch of 30-year-old women who have just graduated from cunt school. <laughs> I am not making this up. How many of you guys have been through Canadian Customs and know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Jesus Christ, you guys need to get a hold of that. 
you need to get that under control because that is ridiculous.